1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art, both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land.
0: You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 105. I'm Chris Webster, and I'll be talking with Dr. Alan Garfinkel today about an article we saw recently in the news and thought it would be important to bring on this show. It's about desert kites over in Saudi Arabia and Jordan and how the blueprints for these 9,000-year-old game drive structures have been found on rocks and what that means in North America. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, everybody. This is Chris Webster, and if you're hearing my voice, that means it's just Alan and I today, and we are actually going to talk about a, uh, something that's been in the news recently and also kind of relate this back to North America. Alan, how's it going?
1: Good. How are you, uh, Chris? Thanks so much Good. for patching in. You're on your on your mobile caravan, <laughs> as it's called, a digital nomad. You're uh, traveling right. around the world, and... Uh, Here we go. Through the the world of magic and digital technology, we get to continue our uh, ongoing conversation on all things rock art and related matters.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I guess we're going to talk about, they call it a map. I'd never heard it called a map per se, but we're talking about this thing we might call game diversion fences. And I guess they're characteristic both in Mm -hmm. the old world And the new, is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. It's been in the news. If you're listening to this in real time, we're recording this in the last week of May, 2023, and there's been some news articles that have come out and actually on the archaeology show that I co-host with my wife, we talked about this a few months ago, and I'll link to our episode in the show notes, but these desert kites, they call them, found out in Middle East, Saudi Arabia in particular, Jordan and Saudi Arabia, I should say, for these particular ones. But yeah, they're just big, huge, I mean, many hundreds and hundreds of feet long rock walls used to corral animals. And then they would kill them, you know, when they got to the when they got to the end.
1: Yeah. So this this phenomenon is quite characteristic of the desert west. Have you ever seen them on the ground, Chris,
0: or no? Yeah. Yeah. We see them out in Nevada occasionally when you see just a, just a stone fence. Well, they used them, uh, the confusing thing in Nevada too sometimes is that they used them historically as well. Sure. To herd like cattle and stuff like that. So, but yeah, we see them, I've seen them occasionally in the, in the West in Nevada. And I know people find them all the time up in uh, like the Dakotas, I think some places where they haven't been plowed. So.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this caught my eye for a variety of reasons because there's a lot of parallels uh, and issues relating to my own research that sort of overlap this. Uh, first of all, there's a, another rock art researcher who believes that we have depictions of these game diversion fences in the rock art record itself Ooh. in association with a bighorn sheep, antelope and deer hunting sites. So and okay. he's he, he's done that through documentation both in the Great Basin, but also in the American Southwest. Hmm. And he's, he's convinced that they, in fact, show that. And I think he's correct. I've seen them also out in Utah, where they actually show a depiction of the fence and the, uh, the drive, mm-hmm. and a, a particular leader of the drive, perhaps a, a shaman, who, is, uh, who has a uh, bighorn sheep headdress on, and he's leading this particular exercise to uh, hunt and slay the animals. Fascinating, right. huh?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and the interesting thing about this article that's in the news now is that they, they, they're saying it may be the world's oldest blueprints. That's the Scientific American article that I'm looking at here. Yes. Because they have found some, some basically large rock slabs that seem to... Basically, have the idea of these things drawn out, drawn to scale. You know, carved right, out right. into the rock. Like, here's how we're going to build this thing, or here's how you do build one of these things, and it's you know seven, eight thousand years old, which I think is fantastic.
1: And and the age on that one that they estimated was was not nine to ten, nine to ten thousand years old. So
0: nine to ten. That okay, would yeah.
1: be uh, right. Yeah. So on the landscape, there's monographs that have been written lengthy uh, treatises about these features all over the desert West. Hmm. And they claim that the principal animal they were going after was antelope, the pronghorn antelope. And the reason being it's on the valley floor. Okay. So if it's on the valley floor, they would be going after pronghorn antelope or deer because that's the way you could hunt them and that's the way you could get them. They would channel them into a restricted area and then they would have their archers or their, you know, their people that would be ready to go to kill these animals, either with dart and otlatl or bows and arrows. And they would probably be hiding behind either brush or rock structures like those blinds, those, those, those rock blinds that they talk about. Yeah. The key is, this is a piece of like landscape archaeology because you have to find a particular place that you can constrict them. You have to engineer this uh, elaborate exercise of an enclosure, and it's it's quite an elaborate enclosure. Yeah. Does that make, does that make sense?
0: It does. It does. And I, I really love this, too, because I, I just love seeing the I, – I love seeing something that gives us a little – impression of the way people thought back then, because, you know, we can kind of infer that from artifacts and, and from building materials and things like that. But the more that we see, especially seeing this illustrated on, uh, you know, as a carving on a rock and then seeing it played out on the landscape as a as a yeah. teaching moment. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And,
1: and I, I, I think cool. I think it's, it's very cool. Now, this sort of connects back with this, uh, they call it game intercept drive sites. That's one of the Mm -hmm. elaborate pieces of, you know, verbiage that they use to talk about these. And these things were the heyday for these sorts of things, at least in the far west, was again the middle archaic from about 2000 BC to circa AD 1. And what blew my mind about them was in doing the research for one of my articles on projectile points that I'm always obsessed with is they found one of these, a game intercept drive site, with hundreds of projectile points that had had those impact fractures where they were oh. shot and then the, then the proximal end broke off of those points. Mm-hmm. So they found hundreds of them, two different kinds, Humboldt, Basil Notch, Bifaces, and, and elcos. But on top of that, they found 25,000 pieces of animal bone from those pronghorn antelopes. Wow. And, th- and this was a site in what's called the Anchorite Hills on the edge of California and Nevada. And that's okay. That, that's rather amazing, don't you think?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it really is. And, I, you know, one thing that, that just reminded me of, too, is we, we always hear, well, I, I've heard in the past, I don't know how many they've found, but they have found some of these game drive Fences underneath the Great Lakes. Uh, I think underneath Lake Superior and oh, underneath really? Lake Michigan. Really? Yeah, because you know, because back when the the Ice Age happened, those lakes were, you know, not there. If not, way smaller. Right at the end of the Ice Age, when the when the glaciers had retreated over the top of them and carved out the basically the lakes and hadn't uh, hadn't filled them back in yet. So people, it was still just the plains. You know, so exactly. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. But I think
1: this particular perspective on rock art, on hunting features and the nature of sort of landscape Mm -hmm. archaeology is an interface that sort of brings up this this whole topic of a new theme or or a relatively new theme called landscape archaeology. Yes. And landscape archaeology is sort of commensurate with, at equivalent with, or interactive with the cutting edge digital nature of the most, you know, mm-hmm. I'd say the newest newest in technology. And so what, what someone does is work with the kinds of technology that you've taught us about, using those um, elaborate GIS machines, right, out in the field. Right. But also twinning them, with a means of creating a three-dimensional model of the landscape and also using drone photography to do mm-hmm. that same thing. So uh, one of the things I want to mention is I've, I was on the committee with one of my board members, uh, Ryan Gerstner, who's had one of the mm-hmm. episodes on here for his work up in uh, Baja. But his master's thesis work right. – at the University of Southern California was on landscape archaeology doing this GIS work on the landscape, trying to tie in or reconstruct the hunting behavior with the physical features on the landscape and the topography and the landforms. Nice. So it's a multi-layered phenomenon. And I was uh uh, very impressed. And also, it has to do with rock art as well, because the rock art that is there mm-hmm. in the uh, association with all of these features depicts projectile points, huge dart points, and the interaction of the hunters hunting the sheep, both with uh, otlottles.
0: Nice. Nice. All right. Well, that was a good setup for this show, especially talking about the article. Again, look at the links in the show notes. Let's go ahead and take a break because I've got something I want to really get into on the other side of this. And it's just been been in my head since I saw this article. So (laughs) let's talk about this on the other side of the break back in a minute. Hey, archaeology podcast fans, anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPodNetFeed at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 105, and we're talking about game drives, Features and rock art and blueprints and ch- again check the link in the show notes for some uh, a really cool news article and some other stuff. But you know, Alan, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if we can even tell this, but I think we're closer to to yeah. it with this particular with this particular drawing or carving. Mm-hmm. We always talk about hunting images, like animals, especially animals that might have, you know, spears pointed at them or somebody actually throwing a spear or, or a a bow or an arrow or something like that, you know, and saying, well, you know, this could be like hunting magic. This could be, um, you know, honestly a demonstration to say, here's how you kill these animals. You know, honestly taking the kids and saying, look, here's what we do. This is the plan. And, but we're never quite sure that that's exactly what it is. But But I feel like like this current research here with these rock carvings of these desert kites, like why would you spend the time carving this thing out on the rock if it wasn't to show other people how to make these things? Probably you know what I mean?
1: To, probably how to make them, how to experience them, how they were engineered and also yeah. to, do, to document a narrative, a historical record mm. of what was accomplished. And then you could share it as a story board or a story towards the youths or other people who would then engender a better understanding of what they're trying to accomplish. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, I think so. That does make sense. Okay.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the, you know, one of the explanatory models for understanding rock art is that these are storyboards. These are uh, commemorative memorials of important events that took place and that they're mnemonics. They're, they're memorials or Mm -hmm. ways to remember these significant events that took place and to commemorate them in perpetuity for mm-hmm. supposedly almost immortality, if you will, on the rocks. Yeah. Now, one of the things I wanted to, to, to mention is that I have a, a, an outstanding example of sort of the scientific study of landscape archaeology, cutting edge technology, rock art, and hunting magic or hunting strategy so mm-hmm. we have a situation at the place called Little Lake which I've talked to often it's in yep. the, it's in the, it's in Rose Valley it's in the eastern skirt of the Sierras the southern end of the Owens Valley there's a, a naturally fed lake that's been there for the last five, six, seven thousand 7000 years and then above that ringing the lake is a lava flow which has which is very steep and very um, it's that columnar basalt that you've seen before Mm -hmm. all around the lake. So what we have is a sort of a perfect place that would be an extreme example of these, this escape terrain, which the bighorn sheep like, if they're going to get water
0: or if they're going
1: to be open on any sort of flat surface, They want to always have within earshot escape terrain that will allow them to go, you know, vertically away and get away from any sort of uh, hunter or animal that was attempting to kill them. So this is a perfect sort of physical area to do that. Well, there was an extensive study of the rock art done for years, Mm. 10 years of rock art <laughs> with eight, with 80 people studying every jot and tittle of all the rock art surrounding Little Lake. And they found, what, 7,000 individual elements. But the argument made wow. by the author of the book, the monograph, was that there did not seem to be any compelling evidence for relating those images to hunting. <laughs> right? <laughs>
0: okay.
1: Because, well, she was on the flats, <laughs> yeah. she, was, she was looking where most of the rock art was, and she wasn't looking above the lake. She was looking around the lake and near the lake and where the concentrations of rock art were. Well, lo and behold, if you just hike up the hillside and get above the lake on the plateau, there is uh, examples of features associated with hunting these animals. First of all, the first of all, there's dummy hunters. What are Uh, dummy hunters? What are dummy hunters? Doctor.
0: Remember those? (laughs) No, I no, I don't know what those are. What is that?
1: These are, they call them dead men and they're in the, in the Southwest or on the plains. They either use wood or they use rock and they create these columnar features that when you look, glance at them quickly from down below, they look like, People and so, because nice. the numbers of pe- numbers of people involved in this, they wanted to channel the animals away from certain areas, and so that they would be able to hunt and slay them. And so they used mm-hmm. dummy hunters. Uh, Muir, in talking about these, said in every promontory throughout the Sierra Nevadas, he found such features.
0: Okay, that so you
1: got you got the dummy hunters. But then you also have these rock hunting blinds and they would be physically configured. I think he found five of them all scattered up on this plateau in a way to orchestrate, coordinate and work with the killing and slaying and interacting of the animals. So what wow. What he was able to do, they say, well, how do you test that? How do you... How do you go about, you know, (laughs) figuring out what these are? Well, there's different measures of doing this that people have pioneered all over the world to begin to kind of understand how this all works. Okay. You can model escape terrain. You want to know how steep is steep, and if you have that escape terrain so far away from the features that you're studying. Then you want to look at the line of sight the view shed analysis where can these people see how can they see and what can they see and how could that be worked out and so you got this visibility analysis then you've also got a means of using those drones so you can do the three dimensional analysis and recreate the landscape and look at it topographically oh yeah so we're we're using GIS maximum cutting edge, you know, to, to do this, this this three-dimensional graphics to see if we can test for the viability and the nature, the content, the character of this interaction of game and hunters. Does that make any sense?
0: It does. Yeah, it really does. Uh, we've seen hunting blinds numerous times across Nevada and Utah. It just reminded me of seeing those. And, you know, just another Another feature on the landscape, you know, that doesn't have to really change all that much, and you know, people use that kind of stuff today. It's really neat to be able to see that on the on the landscape. So one of the more unusual things, another
1: project that's sitting in the back there, is when I went down to Imperial County. There's a museum there, you know, almost in Mexico, and they had mm-hmm. a um, they had a display of a object that was found turn of the century last century in the 1920s and it was a like a of a disguise that an individual Hmm. could put on their head to look like so they would not be seen as a human being Hmm. and so it's it's a vegetal disguise it's made up of plants and and so it would be a a head a head disguise now such a disguise has been found in the Great Basin at Peronigan. It's a full body mm-hmm. disguise with the head disguise as well as little little holes for eyes. And they said when they were hunting using otlottles, they would wear these disguises and they would sit behind these rock blinds and wait for the sheep to come so they could kill them. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So here, So here's a real live example of one of those. And the funny thing was they found that disguise nested in a rock blind right next to a bighorn sheep
0: trail. <laughs> Jeez. Nice. You can't get much better than that. It makes you wonder how that just gets left there. You know what I mean? Like does somebody I know. Did did they come back to it often? But maybe they just I don't know they died one season, or they get they went on somewhere else and kind of forgot all about it. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's interesting. I always wonder. We, we make some, a lot of assumptions based on how we find stuff in association with each, with each other, but a lot of times those things were just dropped, discarded, or just left. are you know, they're, they're they're not usually in the context where they were used. <laughs> yeah. Since
1: these are foragers and hunter gatherers, they try not to take a lot of baggage with them. And sometimes they'll store these things mm. in the rock crevices and cover them yeah. up.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: So, re- so remember when I was talking about in Utah where we found that bighorn sheep headdress? Yeah. And it was in a rock crevice. And it was, a, okay. you know, it had, it had the horns. It had the, it had the leather hood. It had uh, olivella beads hanging from it. And it was a thousand years old. Wow. Nice. So it was, pro- it was probably a headdress which was used either in ceremonial fashion or was used in association with the hunting for sheep per se, which is, what, which is the way in which uh, ethnographically you talk about it.
0: Okay. Well, that is a perfect segue into what I want to talk about in segment three. So let's take a break and come back on the other side and finish up this discussion back in a minute. <laughs> Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 105. And you just mentioned something at the end of the last segment that I was actually thinking about and was going to ask you, and and this is a good time to do it. We talk about the purpose behind Rock Art all the time, which is probably one of next to dating sometimes, but dating is getting a little bit better. But next to dating, it's one of those questions that we'll probably never exactly know the answer to. We can probably get closer and closer to what we think it might be, but without Speaking to the people who created it, it's, it's really difficult to discover the intent behind something, but and, and, you know, there's there's almost a joke amongst archaeologists you know, just because of of historical references. And anytime somebody didn't know how to explain something, they called it ritual, right? There was like, oh, I don't know what this is. It must be ritual, right? Because we didn't understand it. But now that we, you know, we, we go forward in time and we learn more things, we have better dating techniques or analytical techniques. And we say, oh, okay, well, maybe this was used for this and not necessarily ritual. And it makes me wonder, well, Well, obviously, some rock art is definitely used for ritualistic purposes. I mean, there's almost no question there, given some of the fantastical nature of some of those things. But I I just wonder how much of it really is for that and how much of it is more for Instructional purposes, especially with pre-literate societies, you know, that had no writing or anything, else, anything like that, no other way to really demonstrate to other members of their of their tribe or band or community, or even the children, you know, the teenagers that are coming up, learning how to do these things. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if more rock art than less ended up being instructional in nature. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I know what you mean, and I I know that even in my own in my own work. When they've worked with a Native American from the Owens Valley and looked at the rock art, I know that Sandy Rogers, who's another person that we had interviewed here, who's a, mm-hmm. a specialist in rock art and also in obsidian dating, wrote an article about uh, rock art as storyboards. Yeah. And about the, the, they were a means of communicating, educating both adults and children to the uh, value, merits, and the nature of the. Cosmology. Now, one thing we should remember is we're thinking about this in sort of Western industrial, you know, thinking. Right. When, we, when we try to think about indigenous ways of, of thinking or functions, there is no difference between religion and non-religion. There's not a mm. sort of a cosmological, okay. religious, supernatural, and a natural world. They're all intertwined so intimately that no matter how they think about it, it's all the same stuff. So when <laughs> you look at images on stone, they, they probably have some sort of a religious or ceremonial or ideological element to them. But that doesn't mean that it had, didn't have a very functional, basic tutorial or educational ah. element as well.
0: Does that make okay. any sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: It's very difficult to think like a native person, or to somehow, yeah, gr- grasp the way in which an indigenous pre-literate person would be thinking about the world. They would grasp and 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 connect with the natural environment in a whole different way, totally different.
0: Yeah. And that it's so interesting you say that, because I hadn't really thought about it like that before, because it, you know, I'm not very much a religious person, but just, you know, I, I've seen churches, I've been to church and things like that. You are a, a religious person and, and go to church. And it, it makes me think of that sort of ritualistic behavior that we exhibit today, which is on the one hand, it's it's ritual, it's ceremony, it's, it's you know, worship, but on the other hand, it's instructional and in the way that they see it, right? It's exactly. it, both things simultaneously. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's it's interesting.
1: It's it's how to live, but it's also to be to being deferent or understanding sort of the instruction manual for life, yeah. which is which is a guide from our creator. And so Okay. That that's the kind of thinking that we might have uh, engendered. Also remember that every Everything about this exercise we're talking about is different than with the way we think about the world today. And what I mean by that is the rocks, the trees, the wood, the water, the sky, all of them were alive with agency. They hmm. all had active roles in the environment. They could be connected with, they could be communicated with, right. they could be heard. They could be, they would train us, they would help us, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a whole other realm that is rather difficult for a, a modern, industrial, literate individual to grasp. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And that that comes in uh, being very important when you're trying to tease out the salient elements of <laughs> what the heck rock art or what the heck uh, an archeological feature or anything about archeology span is.
0: Now, aside from potentially a similar thing as the article that sparked this discussion, uh, finding like images of, I guess, game drives or game fences or something like that here in North America, can you think of anything else that is just like overtly instructional on rock art that you've that you've seen. I mean I aside from Ab, no, well absolutely. maybe maybe it's just Ab, the hunting. No yeah. no no
1: no absolutely. Okay. One of my most mind boggling discoveries was in Little Petroglyph Canyon. Yeah. And I think I I think I've mentioned this. I don't find I find only a handful of very easily decipherable glyphs mm. that, that hit me through hit me between the eyes and tell me what they're telling me in a way that I can explain it. Okay. But there happens to, happens to be one of those in little petroglyph Canyon that I've only recently in the last couple of years discovered. It's on a pyramidal boulder. It has five figures. One is a, a woman holding snakes above the moon and mm-hmm. uh, the others are patterned around the outside and they look to be holding things that look like parachutes and I was I was mystified by it for a while. And then as I fell over it, I found out what that was all about. And the reason <laughs> this is an instruction manual is it's a the key creation narrative for ancient Uto Aztecans. In other words, okay they talk about when the world was dark and there were no people, there was these uh Dignitaries, these ritualists that accompanied the lunar goddess. And what they did was create the sun. And so to do that, they had to move along this path and go to this sacred place. And then they had to, uh, one of the person had to do a sacrifice and jump in the fire. And then as they came out of the fire, they would then be reborn and be able to create the sun. And once they did that, when the sun would be nested in the heavens, they had to make sure that it would stay there if in the, in the right spot, because if it's too low, it would burn everything up. If it was too high, it would freeze everything away. And so, to do that, they were stationed in the four corners of the earth and became the pillars of the earth. And they also became the people that brought the rain, and held up the clouds in the heavens. So what that whole picture is, is the clouds, the people, the the goddess of the 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 moon. They're all arrayed in this one panel, and there's nothing. It's that's all that's on that panel. It's very simple. It's very straightforward, and that same story is told in uh, South Texas. Okay. The creation narrative as a pictograph that dates to that same general time period. And that same story is identified with the Weechul and with the Aztecs. Hmm. Okay. So, and the reason I talk about that, it's an instruction. It's a storyboard to anyone who would look if a shaman or a religious, uh, you know, adept individual would say, okay, here's here's an example. I'm depicting the famous creation story of our people. And here it is on the rock. <laughs> Does that make sense?
0: Nice. That's really cool. Yeah, I like that. Okay. You know, that's probably about it for this episode. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoy talking about these news articles when they come out because, you know, people see them and they don't necessarily understand what's going on there and, and how that relates to, you know, if the audience happens to be here in North America, how that maybe relates over here. But, you know, you go back that far there's not a lot of differences in, in humanity. There's really not now, to be honest with you. I no. mean, there's cultural differences, no, there really but you go back 9,000 years and people had the same goals. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. All right, doc. Thank you. God bless. All right. See you at the flip flop gang.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends.